Hey everybody, welcome to Piecing It All Together. My name is Bo Sanders, and what we have for you today is some highlights from last week's book conversation. We got to talk with Randy about his book, Shalom, and the Community of Creation. So I hope that you'll enjoy this listen. We also wanted to let you know that on Tuesday, February 11th, we're going to be having our next book, which is Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys by Richard Twist. We're going to read chapter one and two for that conversation and hope that you will join us at 5.30 Pacific time that Tuesday, February 11th. That's going to be our book for February, March, and April, and we're hoping that you will get the book and join in the conversation. We also want to thank our Patreon supporters who pay for all of our technical stuff and our hosting fees, and we are so appreciative of your support, and we could actually use some more Patreon supporters. So if you're interested in that, please see the link in the show notes. We'd love to have your comments. You can comment on Facebook or on this post here or on our website. You can also email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. So this one's from page 149. It starts on the bottom of the page. The goal of Shalom Community is to influence all these systems with Shalom. A Shalom lifestyle is God's way of dealing with the world and its problems. Shalom is meant to be an alternative model to the rest of the world and to provide an alternative to all of the systems in our world that have been corrupted. This is how the hoop gets mended. So that ties in, I found that because we had been talking about systems earlier and these big meta narratives that are totalizing and all explaining, but you're saying, no, this is an alternative to that. It's, it's, um, a, both a critique of that, but it provides uh, something that's, that's actually subversive to this all encompassing system. Caught up in. And, and the reason it sounds so much like the life of Jesus is because Jesus taught a shalom kingdom. We have completely misunderstood what he was about. He was about teaching a kingdom of shalom. We call it a kingdom. I call it a community of creation. I think that's maybe the words he would use at this time because we, you know, I probably didn't realize that he'd be dealing with a, a society that was so dualistic that they couldn't understand the life and everything else. So, um, but, um, but yeah, that that's you. You can't understand Jesus without understanding Shalom. And so, it's like what you describe is like I've heard people say, "Well, this is how you turn to Jesus." You, you, it's an alternative, and you know, well, yeah, because that's what Shalom is. It's it's uh, it should take these you know people who claim to follow Jesus and and uh, make them more radical, not less. Um, and. Uh, you know, I think um, the systemic part of it, um, it, you know, that's really important. Like for us right now, we're coming up into uh, elections and things like that. And, you know, I, I just tell people, vote shalom. You know? <laughs> what, what's going to bring about shalom? Um, what's, where are we going to, you know, and, and that's difficult these days, right? To, But... Uh, but maybe not. Maybe not so difficult if you pay attention. Yeah. Mm. Through both a Native American lens of harmony, 
which um, very much uh, paralleled a ancient Semitic uh, theology, theological construct called Shalom. And um, I really hadn't seen a lot of that done. You know, I mean, at the, that time, a lot of people weren't talking about Shalom. Um, Brueggemann, there have been a couple other books published, but not well-known. And uh, there's a whole lot going on now that has become sort of a buzzword in theology now, which I'm really happy about. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so the idea was to begin to look in a, uh, through a different lens to uh, try to find a new way to do theology. A, a lot. It became a sort of obscure kind of book, really, because no one co- quite knew what to do with it. Um, because it's not just shalom; it's shalom from a Native American perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I don't know quite what happened, but uh, uh, last year, um, all of a sudden, I started getting all these emails and. Mm. People want to talk about the book, and and all of a sudden it, the sales went up, and and it's become a, sort of a a new marker. Um, there's a whole lot of books out, but but I think it's the only thing like this because I think um, people are beginning to see the the wisdom of um, what both our Native American people and the ancient uh, Semitic construct of Shalom has to offer. Yeah. the world in these weird times that we're living in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, my hope would be that people are branching out and uh, looking for uh, perspectives and uh, concepts to bring them to a more holistic understanding. But my fear is that it's coming from a negative, which is recognizing how broken not only our politics, but our economy and our environment in so many ways, there's a, a w- awareness of just that, that something is deeply torn or uh, broken. And so they're looking for healing and health and wholeness. Yeah. And so when you're looking at Shalom, um, uh, a lot of people are writing and they're talking about, you know, peace and this deep peace and community and things like this, but, but they're not, necessarily talking about having to deconstruct the Western worldview in order to get there. Mm. Um, and that's, I think um, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the joke of the, you know, the stranger pulls up to the guy in Maine, the old farmer. And he says, how do I get to such and such? And he says, uh, well, you can't get there from here. <laughs> and uh, so uh, you can't get to Shalom yeah. Unless you deconstruct and decolonize the Western worldview, it's absolutely impossible because the Western worldview is antithetical to Shalom and to the Native American Harmony way. So what does that mean? That means that the Americans who are living on the continent have a history of war and a history of competition and a history of dualism and all the other things. And, and there is no way that they can get to Shalom through that lens. It has to be completely deconstructed. And, wow. uh, and, you know, so that's the, that's the dilemma. And of course the earth is the one most paying for it right now. So, uh, I want to open it up. I, I obviously can talk to Randy all day long about this stuff. And, uh, but I wanted to open it up to the three of you who have joined us this evening, uh, to see if you had any questions or anything that you wanted to touch on, uh, early on. 
I've got enough things to, to go for a little bit, but I wanted to open it up to you. Anything you want to talk about? Tyson here. Just wanted to say hello. Um, hello. I'm working with an eight-month-old as well. So um, maybe you could ask – well, I'll let the other participants chime in here. But um, I'd like to listen for a little bit and maybe ask some questions as we go along. Okay, great. I'm glad you joined us. And what's your eight-month-old's name? That's Josie. Hey. Hi, Josie. <laughs> That's fun. She, she was just here, what, a week and a half ago, a week ago? Yeah. Like yeah. 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 Had a good time there in mopping. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, Ryan. Yo. When you uh, talk to people about Shalom and the community of creation or – um, when you think about um, aspects of the book or the text that come to your mind, is there anything that is sort of the, the lead there? Well, I recommend it a lot, actually, <laughs> to my counselees when they come into my office. It sits on my bookshelf, and when I said I had to dust it off, you know, it, I was joking. I, I show a lot of people this, including a lot of my colleagues. And I talk about, um, you know, a vision, a different kind of vision um, than one that with which they were probably indoctrinated. Um, you know, especially when, and I've noticed the the folks, especially the the young sailors that come in and their lives are broken, and you know, I'm not there to um, proselytize. Um, but anytime I get an open-ended question, like, well, what do you think, chaps? Like, oh, well, thanks for asking. Uh, so then I'm able to kind of talk about a, a Shalom vision. And you know, I, I bring this into play, you know, to explain this to someone who's 19 or 20 years old. Um, life doesn't make sense. Everything's broken and busted. And they're like, what is this crazy chaplain talking about? And I'm able to then communicate a lot about this. And they're like, well, where do you get this from? And I'm like, well, everything around me. Right. But there's also some helpful tools. And I then talk about, you know, uh, Shalom in a, in a harmony way. I, in fact, I've found that surprisingly, I've actually found that young folks that I serve, um, they, it seems like they actually connect better with the native understanding and terminology than actually the the Hebrew biblical thing. And, and part of that, I think, is just the religion piece. Anything that smacks of Christianity or Western theology, they don't want that. Um, but then when they hear something different, they're like, well, wow, that's, that's interesting. Um, so I communicate, you know, to broken people, many of whom have thoughts of suicide um, whose lives are a mess. Their you know, I serve in a community that's a mess. It's a family. Um, it really is a, an albeit dysfunctional family, but this, this book and what Randy, uh, puts into, um, a very understandable kind of language really connects and helps 
my community mm-hmm. and, and in my counseling quite a bit, actually. Wow. Which is um, surprising to me. You know, I wouldn't think when I when I wrote the book, I didn't really have U.S. military members in mind. Uh, well, they need healing. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I'm I'm, I'm glad. Uh, but um, I, I sort of had young pastors, maybe old pastors, um, Christiany people, um, evangelicals, all in mind when I wrote the book because I thought, you know, they really, really need a new lens. And so um, uh, that was kind of how I wrote it. And uh, but you know the the idea of you know it's shalom. I did the title by the way. They tried to come. They they worked and worked and worked. Tried to come up with all these different titles. And finally, they came back to my title. And um, uh, in shalom and the community of creation. You know uh, because you can't separate what's all around us. This good earth. Um, that's alive um, from the rest of the community. It's, you know, it's not just about people. It's not just about religious people or Christians or anything like that. It's about the whole community of creation. That's actually surprising to me when you mention your assumed audience, because the first thing, that's the first time I've heard that Randy, or at least the first time I was paying attention when you talked. Um, but uh, that's a joke again. Um <laughs> The when I hear you say that, the first thought I have is, yeah, but a lot of those folks don't think they're broken. Yeah. And that's why I think I see such an interest in my community because everyone knows they're broke. Everyone knows things are screwed up. Mm-hmm. These are people that come from, you know, again, the military. Th- this is not, you know, the white upper class of America. Mm-hmm. This is, you know economically disadvantaged. I mean, I mean, who's, you know, which group is overrepresented in the United States military, mm-hmm. native Americans, mm-hmm. right? These, the, the, the folks that end up serving in the military are typically folks who don't fit the ones that yell the loudest in society. And they come from broken communities, broken families, and this speaks volumes to them. And so I actually am surprised when, when you assume uh, the kind of audience, because I'm like, no, no, the people that know they're broke, they're the ones that got to read this, pick it up, because they're the ones that are going to carry the torch. Yeah. Okay. This this is Lydia. Um, I'm really excited. Not having heard of your book before, I, I apologize, but I've been I'm coming at this, uh, having read two other books this summer that. I'm just going to order your book tonight and read to it because I'm excited. The first one is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh, yeah. Great book. By uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, uh, you know, Turtle Island and and going back to creation just really rang into what I think Shalom. When you said Shalom in the ancient Hebrews, I'm going, oh, my gosh, this is a key, a piece of my puzzle. And, and the second one, uh, not on the religious side, really, but is Mark Charles' book, uh, Unsettling Truths, Mark The Charles Ongoing Dehumanizing yeah. Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but with those two, it's it's given a different perspective. And now if I 
when I read your book, I'm going to have that. So this is for me, uh, a quest of of pieces of, of questions that are coming up for me, but I think for a lot of uh, people uh, acro- across uh, generations, because uh, what I see how people are responding to Sweetgrass and others, that I can see why your book is now resonating with the new group. Yeah, I I, I love the book reading Sweetgrass. It, it was it's an incredible read because she's such a great writer, you know. Um, she really, it's really poetry. It's, she inspired me to write. I'm working on another book, actually, um, sort of working on two books, actually, but, but one of them is called, uh, um, uh, oh, I can't remember the name right now, but it's about creation. And, and I've started writing it in the way that I feel that she was writing it kind of gave me a new genre to write in almost a poetic sense. And, uh, and it's working out real well. So, so that book's really been influential. Um, the, uh, the book by Sung Chan Ra and Mark Charles, co-authors, um, I endorsed. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, I, I thought it was great. I got to read it beforehand. And Sung Chan Ra, the, the other author of that, did the foreword to my book. So we're all on sort of the same page, as it were. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Randy, when people bring you in uh, to speak, um, do you get the sense that they like the idea of reclaiming some notion of shalom, some biblical idea of shalom, because it it sounds faintly familiar uh, to them. They have some awareness of it, but that they are, that they are unprepared for the thing that you said uh, so succinctly earlier about deconstructing the Western worldview, do you think that that's the part that sort of s- sneaks up on them? Used to be. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, in the last couple of years, um, I'm getting a lot of invitations from people who that's why they're inviting me, because they want help deconstructing that Western worldview. So I go into a lot more, like the Staudemeyer lectures I did at Western Theological Seminary, you know, we did three days of, uh, of lecture. Well, and not three days, two days. The um, the Hayward lectures in uh, that I just did in um, Acadia. yeah Acadia in uh, um, what, yeah Wolfville, Nova Scotia. <laughs> My wife's behind me, coaching me here. <laughs> um, three days we're deconstructing you because you know I would have probably if I realized that I probably spent a lot more. De- time in the book deconstructing if I'd have, you know, but I've been growing with this thing also. And, um, and, and that part can be kind of rough for people who aren't ready, but a lot of people for the Mennonites, for example, I did a, a rooted and grounded conference last fall and they want to hear all about it. They want to know all about, you know, native views of Shalom because they've been into Shalom for a long time. So the peace churches and folks like that. So I think, um, yeah, it's resonating. Um, um, I, I think I, I'm not sure if um, how far people are willing to go mm. with deconstructing that Western worldview. But I mean, it really is, uh, and this is one of Brueggemann's definitions of shalom. It is a protest against the philosophies and the brokenness in this world right now. And um, 
it's not a, a nice theology that you can just adopt and go, oh, I, I'm, I, I do shalom now. No, it's a, it's a whole different way of seeing the world and living in the world. So. Yeah, it is not. Uh, I, I like to tell people it's not an app that you can just run on your current operator operating system. It's a different operating system. It it's not an easy transition. Yeah, you've always got a a, a really interesting way to sneak in an example. <laughs> Uh, a mechanical example. <laughs> I think that I think that helps a lot of people. Yeah, well, so, yeah. I just you know, yeah, and it, I contextualize it for my audience. But it is it is ironic to use yeah. a technological example to go. Yeah, so I would say it like this: like you know, everybody knows that when you've been riding a horse and the horse falls down and dies, you don't keep riding that horse. You get on a new horse. I was thinking you don't use a cat to go duck hunting. <laughs> Got to get a dog that can hunt. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to read some highlights um, that I picked out that I think will be good conversation starters. Okay. So this first, this first one is on page 21. Shalom is communal, holistic, and tangible. There is no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have shalom or no one has shalom. As long as there are hungry people in a community that is well-fed, there can be no shalom. Where there are homeless and jobless people amidst the employed and wealthy, shalom cannot exist. Shalom is not for the many while a few suffer, nor is it for a few while many suffer. It must be available for everyone. In this way, shalom is everyone's concern. Shalom very much defines the common good. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if our churches thought that way, you know? Well, that would be an interesting starting point. Yes. Um, yeah, I, you know, that that grates against American individualism, right? Yeah. So, um, and it grates against this capitalistic system that we're living in. Um, it, it's, you know, it's sort of like, you know, get all you can, can all you can get. And, and if you're a good person, let it trickle down, you know, yeah. but that's not what Shalom is. Um, Shalom is, it's not that everybody has to have everything equal. It's, that's not it. It's that, uh, what I would say that everybody has to have equity. They have to have a stake in, uh, and, and the opportunity, uh, that others have. And as long as we have, you know, uh, racist, misogynistic, you know, homophobic, et cetera, et cetera, society, um, everybody doesn't have the same opportunity if you want to look at it on a grand scale. But, um, and, and that grand scale is a big vision, right? But, but Shalom is local. But it can, but I think we also have to see it as the big vision as well. Not for, not as a utopia. Definitely not as a utopia because, uh, the utopian vision is, you know, um, like, you know, let's do it either like they did in the past or let's, you know, we've got this crazy future to look forward to that's perfect. But Shalom is sort of just like we move in and out of it. We never sort sort of stay there. Uh, we we move in and out of Shalom throughout our lives and, mm. and uh, trying to keep the peace, keep the Shalom. Mm. No, that's an interesting distinction that it's not a utopia. Yeah. And, and I think uh, Tyson has something he wants to say. Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, 
Yeah, I guess you kind of addressed it, but that's a little bit what grates against me is that grandness of the idea of shalom, the all-encompassing nature of it feels far off and unattainable, um, feels like pie in the sky, heaven, you know, that sort of idea. Um, and maybe it's just my personality, but that's kind of defeating in a way. Maybe that's just the, the tough world that we live in, but it's like the starfish story. You know, the starfish story where the, the little kid is throwing starfish back into the sea. Um, nod your head if you, if you, <laughs> it's the one where they're, Oh no. Okay. Well, I can't do the story justice. It's just a short folk tale, but it, there's a, a boy or, or a girl on the seashore. She's throwing starfish back into the ocean. And, um, oh. an adult comes by and says, why are you throwing starfish into the sea? You know, it, it was a matter for that one. Right. Well, yeah. I always kind of hated that story because <laughs> it, it never addresses the problem, you know, of like yeah. the wholeness of yeah. getting everything right. So, um, I guess I don't have a, a core question to that. Just my reaction. Well, we're, we're big idea people in America, right? I mean, and so we want to see everything go big. Um, that's, that's what we think. And so I used to think that I wanted to make big change in the world. Right. But, but now I'm at the place where I just want to make uh, change locally around me and then let that be a model for those who want to see, to see. Um, and I think change happens that way, you know, um, also, uh, maybe even, um, more permanently. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, um, kind of fed up with the, the big stuff. You know, a lot of people aren't changed to the big meetings and the big things and the big structures and the big, you know, not that those aren't important. They are very important, but utopia is when you go, Oh, let's all just, shoot for this thing that will probably never happen. Shalom's not that. Shalom is like, okay, in my household, does everybody have the same opportunity? In my household, are my children respected? Are they listened to? Um, in my neighborhood, how are my neighbors doing? You know, um, et cetera. Uh, the, the groups that I'm involved with, my community, you know, how's everybody? Um, it's It's really exactly if you will what jesus taught you know it's you know uh, caring if you know caring for other people and so um uh, love is a pretty you know uh, uh, you know shalom and love are so closely related in a sense shalom uh, love is to what i say love is simply to prefer someone else as much as i do myself you know i prefer to be able to have a home to sleep in. I prefer to have food on the table. I prefer to, you know, have a relationship with people around me, um, you know, and my neighbor uh, would like to have that too. And if they don't, then I, to love them means I simply try to help them obtain the same opportunities where they can do that as well. Mm -hmm. um, shalom is when you really structure that. I call it structured love. It's when it, comes into a, um, a sort of a, a bigger idea um, that uh, things need to like be done a certain way. So all of a sudden in my community, I find out somebody is, you know, poisoning a particular segment. Uh, then we have to create structured love to stop that, or we have to create waste, um, you know, other opportunities around that. So 
so um so it's not a, a um it's not just local it's not just the big idea it's really both but it you know what can you do you know yeah you have to start where you're at right um i again this idea of modeling shalom to me is probably the most important You know, Randy, th- it's, that's actually, this is a, a new wrinkle, uh, I think, that you've probably added since you wrote the book. And it's really interesting because, you know, we live in a time where uh, the 20th century was full of um, totalizing narratives, these really big, all-encompassing ideas like um, communism, right, and the end of the cold war and obviously global capitalism and right. These big totalizing all explaining narratives. And so we have really been conditioned to think in the meta, the biggest, most abstract, elusive concepts. And then there's this huge gap. And then we sort of know how to do the starfish thing, which is like, well, I know it matters to that one starfish but we don't know how to bridge the gap between the micro and the huge, the macro. And so uh, like for instance, the, our politicians can come on and throw out these giant numbers. This will cost this many million or billion or trillion dollars. And it sounds, it's so far out there. And then we're just worried about taking care of our, you know, our own backyard and what gets lost is bridging that gap because there's no structure for bringing about the greater good. Hmm. So this is a new wrinkle I haven't heard you talk about. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, John Mohawk has influenced me a lot from this whole utopian idea, right? The, uh, the author of the book, Utopian Legacies. Yeah. And um, if you understand basically almost every, if not every form of utopianism throughout the world has ended in a, a situation where the, you know, their end justifies the means, including the, um, the religious doctrine of discovery and everything that happened uh, to our native people here. Um, you know, the, the, the land theft and et cetera, attempted genocide, the ethnocide, the cultural genocide, um, all happen, uh, um, you know, because, uh, you know, the, there was this utopian vision uh, that Christians were supposed to have this and, and others weren't unless they were Christian. And, and the same thing happened, you know, with slavery and everything else. So it's the, the utopian visions almost always end up um, uh, going bad because they, they, they believe in the, the vision so much that the ends justify the means. Shalom, maybe I should say it's something that works on the ground. And it's something that's not just structured, but it's organic. And so that means you have to figure it out as you're going, right? Which is um, how I live my life, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, uh, to quote uh, one of my favorite books by uh, Paulo Freire and uh, Miles Horton, uh, you make the road by walking. And, uh, um, and as you're walking, you figure things out. Uh, mm-hmm. But you have to have yeah, that vision to know, you know, uh, as a moral compass, I guess you'd say. Yeah, this is not a blueprint uh, that you lay over top of society to fix all of society. Right. 
There we go. Chaos. Yeah. And so uh, it's 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 amazing how we've just been conditioned to think in these oversized solutions, and none of them address the on the ground. Uh, reality for the people who are affected most by our systems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, what you've brought up Bo with this and the, and the systems approach has been the fear that I've had um, with regard to Randy, you know, your book here, I, I think the fear that I have is that people can miss this and, and do what Bo just mentioned, the blueprint kind of thing, laying it down. Because if there's one thing that it can should be assumed about Western societies, that it's all rooted in myth. Um, and it's untangible, abstract, just stuff that you can't touch, uh, that you can't plant, right? And, and there's two things that always stick out of my mind from – Shalom in the community of creation, land and story. Mm. And where do you find the land? Well, you're standing on it. And what's your story? It's not the myth. It's the people around you, especially the ones you want to ignore. It's, and it's, it's not just the people. It's also the birds and the trees and the plants. So, you know, it's all tangible. That's what I found so frustrating in Western society that even the well-meaning people still go with the, the systems approach and the myth, and it's not tangible. You cannot have shalom without dirt <clears throat> and story, yeah. or else you're not connected to it. You don't have skin in the game. Your DNA is not connected to it. That's what I hear. Yeah, mm. that's great. That's really Thank powerful. You. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe when, when the earth spits us out, we'll finally realize we're more connected to it than we thought. Yeah. So there's that one section. I don't, I think it might be chapter five, but I'm not sure that where I talk about the difference in the Western and the indigenous way. The figures. Yeah. And, um, where did you come up with that? By the way, sorry. I just, the, the, the number one thing I remember from your courses is those, those pie charts (laughs) that has been etched in my mind forever. (laughs) And Randy, you're right. That is chapter five. Okay. Yeah. Chapter five got a little thick for some people. I used to, when it first came out, everybody would say, oh, I got, you know, I was reading it and I think I'm up to chapter five. I have to come back to it later. (laughs) Because we start talking about, you know, uh, philosophy and philosophers and uh, um, epistemology, right? Which is, you know, how you come to know things. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, but but it's really it's pretty simple. It was it's just the West people with the Western worldview and people in indigenous worldview are almost polar opposites in terms of how they think and how they come at life and what they see uh, as uh, life and and uh, for example you know the community of creation around us is all always speaking to us. It's a it's our library. It's our way of coming to know the world and each other and learn lessons from the, the birds and the dogs and, you know, the, the, the deer and the grass and the river and all our teachers, as opposed to looking at all of that and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, the main thing here, I'm the, you know, apex uh, species and, and everything else answers to me, which is just a, 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 the opposite. It's the opposite. 
You know, on page 110, which is the last page of chapter five, you have a nice uh, bullet point um, contrast between the Western worldview and Native American theology and practice. But I remember the first time I read it, thinking uh, like that, that somebody who was unfamiliar with the difference between the two will think that you overstated it just to draw contrasts. But now that I go back and I revisit this uh, several years later, I really think that you didn't overstate it. It really is that different. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's just one way to show the difference, right? Yeah. So the contrast is profound. Yeah. And, you know, the, the big question is, you know, how do you get Western thinking folk yeah. to, um, begin to peel back their Western eyes and uh, have a, uh, um, a a different way of, of doing things. So, so Rachel, hi. Hi. <laughs> you and I get to meet for the first time. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for having me. Do, do you remember, Bo, I mentioned that I got a real nice uh, yes. hand-painted hand card from someone? Yes. Um, this is Rachel from British Columbia, so I'm really glad. I, I let her know that this was happening tonight. I'm really glad she came. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Me too. Um, so you read the book, Rachel. Yeah. And I listened to the a podcast recently. Yeah. And <laughs> you talked about my letter in it. And I was walking on campus and I stopped in my tracks. I was like, wait. What? <laughs> well, it was so it was incredible. I, you know, this this is you know the encouragement um, that you know that that comes hopefully when you write something. So you you never know if you're going to hear back from people or not, right? Yeah, hey, really nice penmanship. You know, it's really uh, and I keep it here because I remind myself it encourages me, and I really really love the the front too. Did you do that? Yeah. Yeah, that's really nice. So. Wow. But um, and I just appreciate the what you shared and um, you know some of the personal stuff and the struggles you know even between you and your mom and about that and I thought that was just just really just really important to me. Thank yeah. you. My mom took um uh wait I think it's Terry LeBlanc's course mm -hmm. uh like a few years ago in the summer at Regent College and so that's why that's how I read the book is because she had it. Um, and so that's been just a really empowering um, for my relationship with my mom because we're both able to like talk about um, like the things that you um, bring up in your book. And so it's been really awesome. And then now we're taking on my dad. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so yep. let me ask, so, so Tyson, Ryan and Rachel all have read it. So let me ask a question of you guys. Um, how do you begin to peel back the Western way of thinking to take on a more uh, either indigenous or, you know, uh, you know, a Hebrew, whichever way you want to go or whichever you want to want to look um, worldview? What what's the process for doing that? Who wants to go first? You can. OK, um, I think that for me. Um, mostly my <laughs> my reactions in terms of, of peeling back worldview is like just a 
um, a desire to to listen um, to what Indigenous voices are saying, um, particularly like as I live on um, Coast Salish land, um, and just and just trying to get involved with what's happening here and what the people of this land are saying. Um, and also it's, it's made me, um, just so aware of, um, perspectives like the Western worldview is everywhere, you know? And like, I go to church and then I'm like, why do I feel so uncomfortable? Oh yeah. Because I actually don't agree with what, um, this guy is saying right now. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Things just have, um, it's been like a domino effect in my life where things keep happening, um, joining new conversations and um, classes and stuff. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Well, you're a better moderator than me, so you can take this over. Just to- <laughs> I'm actually checking in. I'm actually checking in on the Facebook to see if anybody is is uh, typed out any questions. So keep going. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anybody but else? I, or go I, ahead. I don't really have like a uh, like a alternative worldview that I can just like bring up because and um, like I don't have that. So what I can do, I feel like is just to listen and to, to be um, willing to be like challenged in myself, in myself and um, the things that I might still be holding on to um, and try to learn from people who know more. Okay. Yeah. I'm uh, in a learning posture as well um, in a big way. So yeah, on the journey, but I think along the way, uh, something comes to mind, which is just nationalism, you know, kind of letting that go or die away. A lot of the isms, actually, um, in addition to understanding whiteness and privilege, I think that was a huge paradigm shift for myself, um, which is definitely Western worldview. Um yeah, there's so many, there's so much deconstruction. I think it's like just all encompassing. Like you said, Randy, um, being in the moment as well, like listening, um, like you were saying, um, to nature and the things around you that they have something to offer that. Yeah. It's a little bit mystical, but, um, I think you understand what I mean. So it, let me let me hit that up just for a second. Mystical. There's actually nothing less mystical than actually seeing creation and learning from it. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's mystical because the Western worldview says, "Oh, oh, that's something different, right? That's something outside of our realm." But but it's actually the most natural thing in the world to go out in the woods and say, "Speak to me," you know. Uh, don't be ready. That's so well said. And um, that right there is kind of a, like a, a head scratcher, you know? So there's like a lot of these head scratchers along the way. So it's so true. So true. I teach a class. Ryan, did you have the class with me called uh, Theology and Ethic of the Land? No. Okay. So, so 
it actually ended up being my favorite course that I taught, but it's called Theology and Ethic of the Land. And one of the things that we would do, the first time I taught it, I was a little afraid because uh, we would go on a retreat site and then, uh, and I would say, okay, now I want you to go out for the next two hours and just find a, a lone spot and then come back and tell me what you saw and heard and understood. And uh, I thought, oh, man, they're going to come back and go, I don't know. I just sat there for two hours. It's the most boring time. You know, everybody said it was one of the most transforming experiences in their life. Wow. The, the way that they heard from creation, the way that they heard, you know, from their understanding of, of God. And uh, and so I did that every time. And, it, it, and I've never had, you know, people not come back really excited and blown away. And, uh, and so, you know, it's just something that we have shut out of our lives that we need to, to come back to. And, and another reason to save those sacred wild spaces, you know, uh, I'll just, well, yeah, Lydia. Um, this raises a, a, this is all fantastic. And Rachel, thank you so much for what you've been saying. It really connects with, with me. What I, where I've come to in a wrestling and uh, just throw it out there is with the Western Christian worldview. It's almost, if you go to nature, you are not a Christian. If, if you, you know, talk to the trees or anything, that's pagan. Uh, and I think for me, that's a wrestling point. At what point does my knowledge of who Christ is, you know, and his impact in the land, as opposed, you know, those worldview conflict. Do you address anything like that? Or does somebody have some insight? Because I think that's where the rubber hits the road for a lot of people. Yeah. So, so if you're, um, a uh, follower of Jesus, which I take it you are, based on what you said, is that correct? Yes. Okay. So, um, and, and I, I actually deal with this in the book a bit, but um, uh, and and you believe the Bible's uh, sacred to you, correct? Yes. Okay. So, um, in the first chapter of John, in the first chapter of Colossians, uh, in the first chapter of Hebrews. In the ninth chapter of First Corinthians, all of those writers and books attribute the Creator to Jesus. Mm-hmm. In other words, the, the, the John maybe said it best: "Best uh, uh, without Him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus made it. That's what they're saying. The West doesn't have a theology of that of Christ of Jesus as the Christ Creator." Um, there's only just a few theologians that even write about it. But if you think about that, um, Christ creates this good earth and inhabits, as it says in Colossians 1, 17 and following, and 1, 14 and 17, I think it is, every part of it. Inhabits every part of it. And so that is the life that we talk about, the spirit that is in everything. And so um, you're, you're, you're being unfaithful to Christ if you aren't paying attention to those things, his good creation. 
That's my answer to that. Thank you. Problem with Christians is they don't believe the Bible. <laughs> it's not that really they don't believe it. What it is is they've read it through the wrong eyes. So indigenous people wrote it from an indigenous worldview where nature is alive, where donkeys talk, where, uh, you know, fish uh, have coins in their mouths and, and where, uh, you know, storms listen. And um, that's the worldview that it was written from, very similar to Native American indigenous worldview. But we try to read that with Western eyes. Westerners are the most ill-prepared people to interpret the scriptures that probably any people in the world, especially Americans, because of the individualism that's stacked on top of that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really think, you know, the whole Bible, uh, if you will, has to be rethought in Western Christianity because they've interpreted it so wrongly. Thank you. It, can I just add a footnote to this just really briefly and then I'll get off. I said the, my awakening started on the search, believe it or not, at uh, the United Methodist General Conference in 2016, where Bishop Abrams said, who do you follow? Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of Constantine? And I think you've just, uh, answered that question in a whole different way yeah i saw my uh or my mom's wait yeah my dad's pastor friend um i met with for coffee the other day because he also listens to the podcast that you guys make um and he made this meme and um it says who do you stand behind and one picture is um with Greta Thunberg and she's behind she it's when that that picture of when she gives up her time um when she has to speak to the um to like young native um representatives and then um she had like a few minutes and she gave up her her time and then the other picture is when all of these um <laughs> like evangelical um popular uh people like Hillsong and Bethel and stuff they went to go visit Trump in the White House and they're all standing behind him and this is like even more I think that the circles that I've been in um with like youth um they don't really like being associated with um American American evangelicals but they still love Bethel and Hillsong and all these people that are like pop stars that are Christian and then you have all those people from the band that um, are standing behind Trump and kind of like reaching out to him. And then those two pictures came out in the same week. And so um, the pastor like put them like beside each other and said, who do you stand behind? Um, oh, nice. So I was like, that's. Yikes. <laughs> Good. Yeah. It, it, what you said just reminded me that, you know, uh, although, um, you know, Western music and, the Christian music, uh, Western Christian music that's been coming out for so many years is actually, you know, there's, there's some cool tunes, and, but it's most of it's based on really bad theology, um, unfortunately. So, you know. Hey, uh, Randy, <clears throat> uh, did ever did everyone get a chance to say about how the they initiate initiating the conversion? 
I was checking the Facebook thing. I don't know if everybody got a chance to respond. What do you mean? Oh, Randy had asked about initial steps in making the move, uh, the transition. Uh, I took a high school class on um, BC First Nations, and it was like the only like authentic learning experience um, in high school that I really had. And my teacher was like, um, she's from, she's Lakota, and I still meet with her um, all the time. But she she um, <laughs> created this beautiful space in the classroom um, mm-hmm. to have discussions about um, race and about the history of Canada and the United States. And um, yeah, I think that pretty much everyone in the class kind of um, changed their life a little bit. So I was like, mom, uh, (laughs) how do I deal with Christianity in this context? Because obviously there's um, something going on here. And then she was like, oh, you should read this book. And then awesome. I don't don't think, I think I'd be really lost right now if I hadn't (laughs) um, read your book, Randy, because yeah, I, I just wouldn't understand. Like, I would probably just have like, left Christianity and been like, this is garbage. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, Ryan, are you still there? I'm always here, Randy. <laughs> so Ryan and I have become friends. He, you know, it, it's really funny. We were thinking the other day, almost all my best friends are former students. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and they range in age from, you know, like 24 to uh, 74. So, um, but, uh, but Ryan and I have become friends over the last couple of years. And, and, uh, and so he's had a lot of opportunity to, to hang out and do native things and go to sweat lodge and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, um, uh, I'm assuming that, that all of that is, is helped you, uh, but although he actually came looking for what what we were offering, he came in and said, uh, "I want to take all your native classes, and, you know, blah blah blah." I want because I want to learn this stuff. So, um, Ryan, you got anything you want to say? So this is about personal transformation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah. yeah. So, uh, coming from a fundamentalist uh, background, Pentecostalism. Um, out of the, out of a, at the time, what was the worst didn't turn out to be the worst, but at the time was the worst church situation I'd been in, uh, up to that point. Uh, I suffered with adult onset Calvinism and, uh, decided to go to seminary (laughs) and, uh, long story why I went to, um, George Fox, um, which doesn't exist anymore. But um, I remember looking at the faculty and I was like, what is up with this one guy? He's got really long hair and like wears some weird necklace. And, oh, it says he's like some Cherokee dude. Like, okay, well, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that guy. That sounds like some liberal dude. I don't really want to listen to that. Uh, He'll probably try to take my gun away. And uh, so – Mm-hmm. Um, turns out my, uh, advisor was none other than a guy by the name of Randy Woodley <laughs> that I was like, Oh crap, what do I do? And I remember telling my wife, I was like this, I don't know what I'm going to have to change advisors. Like, I don't know what, this is crazy. Like this guy's probably pagan or something. Um, 
and it just so happened that I don't know. Yeah. Um, because I'm Pentecostal, um, I think I just listened to the spirit and I felt like, you know, I've always been, I've always had a connection, uh, from the earliest memories I have to the indigenous people of this land. And I saw and experienced things, um, that I couldn't explain to my family and they wouldn't understand, <clears throat> you know, just but connected to that indigenous, um, people and, and everything. So I was, I saw the opportunity to take a class, uh, or well, take several classes. Right. Randy, I think, I think it was like, I think I took like three mm-hmm. of those indigenous courses. I was like, Oh man, the, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just jumping in. And, um, and I was, it was, I think for me, it wasn't so much the courses. It was the experience the first time in a sweat lodge where, I was like, I, something's wrong with me. Cause to me, this is like a Sunday night prayer service at a Pentecostal camp meeting. Um, for me, you know, and, and I remember sitting around afterwards doing the talking circle and I'm sitting there with all these like mostly white, you know, seminary students who come from very different backgrounds than I do. Um, at least that's how it appeared to me, like hippie types, whatever. I don't know. You know, and they're like using all this high language to talk about what they experienced in the sweat lodge. Cause you would ask, what do you think it meant? Like, what do you think is behind all this? And they're giving these like just amazing answers. And I, and I think I was the last one in that talking circle. And I was just like, I have no idea what I'm going to say is I'm all wrong. Obviously these people are way smarter than me. And I just said, well, I, I, I don't know. I kind of went in and, uh, you know, it seemed like, uh, I was just getting rid of a lot of bad stuff. And then, uh, you know, it felt like almost like a rebirth when I came outside and, you know, feels like that's kind of what it's all about, but you know, I'm probably wrong. And then you, you like go, yeah, so here's the story of sweat. And it was basically exactly what I said. I was like, oh, wow. Um, maybe it's more simplistic than I thought. And so it just like, I don't know. It was different for me. I d- it wasn't about systems or philosophy or anything like that. Peeling back the Western worldview was like, this is, and I think I remembered saying, I think I said this um, at that talking circle. I said, this was like coming home for me. Mm. A home that I've always known, that I always wanted, that I had as a child and was stripped away from me. Mm. Something has been given back to me. And people are speaking to me that I didn't know before. And it was making that connection, I think, to the land and the ancestors that go, yes, this is who I am. I just, it just was robbed from me. So I, I've had, uh, I, I haven't had, I haven't heard a lot of people say that. So I always feel like I'm kind of an outlier. Um, well, actually, you know, it's really, um, you're actually just an example. The reason I wanted you to say something is because you've experienced stuff, right? It's not about Regarding. just readings. It's not just about reading the book. It's about experiencing the life of, of which the book is speaking, right? So. Well, I mean, and I don't know. Yes, yes, absolutely. I don't know if that's because, and, and I, huh, I know it's not just this, but I mean, like, I don't know if it's coming from a Pentecostal background where that's kind of expected to experience things, but I know it's not. Um, no, this is tangible life. Um, it's, it's not about, it's not about the, the, 
I don't know, the esoteric, mystical, like, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. It's just not, to me, I got to get out of my head and I got to go touch, touch something. I got to, I got to experience it with, 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 with my whole being. And I can't say just with my heart. It's with my whole being and I got to do it with, with people. I can't do it alone. So it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to put it into words. It's something people need to experience Um, or else you you can't get it. You can't get it um, without having the experience. And and I, uh, I'm always at uh, at a loss of words. I always want to tell people here, let me show you, or let's do this together. Um, you know, and maybe that's a good thing because that's kind of how Jesus did it. But he was a good Indian. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> he was a good indigenous lad. 